Well, happy Easter, church family. What a strange Easter this is. But what an incredible song we've just heard. Every Easter, we ask God to pour out his spirit. Every Sunday, we ask God to give us a revelation of himself as the resurrected Christ. Every Sunday, we ask for his presence. But there's a, no day like Easter Sunday when we just want God to pour himself out. We know that people traditionally will go to church on Easter Sunday that sometimes don't go to church or don't even think about church, but they do at Easter. But that option is even off the table right now. And yet, I believe that all around the world, there are millions and millions and millions of people who are finding worship services online that they can watch and hear the gospel. And, and I want us to pray before we get started here that God would pour out a fire of the Holy Spirit, a flood of his blessings on people around this world, that he would do what that song says, that he would pour it out. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I bless you for the efforts that our worship team made to put together this unique, one-of-a-kind video for us that it will minister to us for days and weeks and years to come. But Lord, I, I, I want to ask you that you will use that song as a reminder to us as your children to pray daily, to cry out to you, that you would pour it out, that you would send the fire, that you would send the flood, that you would burn away the dross, that you would sweep people into an abundance of a new and fresh relationship with you. Lord, I pray for every electronic device that is tuned in to worship services around this world today, that the Spirit of God would speak off of those screens into the hearts of human beings and that many will come into the kingdom and be saved. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Now, I'm going to start, this is Easter Sunday, but I'm going to start with the negative and go to the positive. I think it's important because that's what Paul does in the passage that we're going to look at today. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. And I want to entitle this message, The Substitute. The Substitute. Now, we have all kind of ideas about substitutes. For instance, you go to the grocery store, you go to the drugstore, you, you go to any kind of business and you can get the name brand or you can get the substitute. And they always tell you that the substitute is just as good as the name brand. Well, I, I'm not smart enough to know that, but here's what I do know. The substitute of Christ for our sins is a great exchange that changes our lives for eternity. Now, sometimes we'd like to substitute things. We'd like to go back and fix things. I like to fix some of my sermons, and, and we'd like to go back and Photoshop our pictures so we look a little better than we do, that all of a sudden you, you look at somebody and, you know, they're 80 years old, but their Photoshop picture looks like they're 60, and you're just wondering, you know, can I get that done? Can I touch that? It's, it's a substitute for reality. But the substitute that we're talking about today on this Easter Sunday is about a permanent substitute 
a beautiful substitute, an eternal substitute. And so Paul is going to lead us through the bad, who we were before we found Christ, and then to the good. You see, nobody's off the hook. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, he doesn't let anybody off the hook. You were, all of us were, the Jews, the Gentiles. What he's telling us is what the Bible states clearly. We cannot save ourselves. We can't be saved by joining a church. We cannot be saved by baptism. We cannot be saved by good works. We cannot be saved by being moral people because at the end, we are sinners. We are born into sin. And when Paul says we're dead, I love what Curtis Vaughn said about this. He said, it is as though the whole world were one vast graveyard and every gravestone had the same inscription, dead through sin. All of us are dead in sin and through sin. If you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, it is in, there's no punctuation in the Greek. There are no commas, there are no periods. It's, it's one long sentence in verse 7, and you don't even get to the first verb until verse 5. So look at what he says. He says, we were dead. And dead means dead. Look at this passage in Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before Christ went to the cross to pay the price for our sins. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God's Son took our worst, our sin, our depravity on himself and gave us his best, himself, his blood for our salvation. Our righteousness, our good works is as filthy rags. The book of Ezekiel says in chapter 18 and verse 4, the soul who sins will die. Left to ourselves, all we've got to look forward to is death with no hope beyond the grave. Paul uses this trespasses and sins to give us a comprehensive description, an overarching picture of every kind of sin, trespasses and sin. Before we were saved, we were dead in trespasses and sin. We walked according to the course of this world. We were dominated by the power of the devil. We were disobedient by nature. We were self-indulgent. We were rebellious against God and all that he stands for. The book of Romans tells us in chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. 
In Ephesians 2, he says, dead in your trespasses and sin. We might have been alive. We might have felt fine. We might have felt like, man, I don't have any problems. But on the inside, at the core of our being, that part of us, which is us, we were dead. Dead to God. Alive to our flesh, but dead to God. Now, depending on your translation, you can miss the depth of this statement. For instance, in chapter 2 and verse 1, the King James says, you hath he quickened. In verse 5, it, King James says, hath quickened us together. Those phrases were not in the original Greek. What it said in the original Greek was, you were dead. And again, he's writing four verses to tell us how dead we were in our sin. He gets to verse 5 and he talks about being made alive in Christ. Now, why would you take four verses to talk about the bad and then in the fifth verse you say something good? Because most of us are self-defensive. Most of us, as somebody said to us, you're, you're bad to the core. I mean, you're depraved. Said, Wait a minute. No, I'm better than a lot of people I know. And so Paul is tearing down the arguments and the defenses of people who say initially, I don't need anything to do with Christ. I don't need God. I don't need help. I can fix my own life. And yet we are dead in sin. We are devoted to sin. There is no thought of God or our need for God. Easter is a reminder that we don't need to forget. Those of us who got up this morning and said, Hallelujah, He is risen. Praise the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Before our feet hit the floor and we thanked Him for His salvation, we need to remember what we were saved from. We were saved from a horrendous sense of depravity and sin. You say, well, I was saved when I was seven years old. Just as lost as the man who gets saved when he's 70. It took the same amount of the blood of Jesus to save a child as it does to save the most wretched person you can think about. It still cost God his son. Secondly, he took my place so that I could live. Now, I'm dead in sin. How do I get to be alive in Christ? How do I get to resurrection power? How do I get to forgiveness and to freedom in Christ? You, you cannot bypass this thought of substitution. Christ died in our place. We should have been on the cross we should have died for our own sins. And Christ came and said, I will die for you and deliver you from sin that you cannot deliver yourself from. Now again, that idea of substitutes. All of us remember in school that a teacher would be out and we'd get a substitute. And sometimes a substitute was good and sometimes a substitute was bad. Sometimes the class took advantage of the substitute Sometimes the class towed the line with a substitute. That is not the kind of substitute we're talking about here. We are talking about the sufficient, all-powerful substitute in Jesus Christ who adequately, adequately paid the price 
that was required to pay our sin debt. And until we see this, we will never fully appreciate what resurrection is all about. We will never fully appreciate Easter. I remember one of the former pastors that I served with, Nelson Price, and he would often say, you realize that we celebrate Easter 52 Sundays out of the year because every Sunday is a celebration of resurrection, which means it's a celebration of hope that as bad as the cross was, the empty tomb is the final word of God. Leon Morris said, to put it bluntly and plainly, if Christ is not my substitute, I still occupy the place of a condemned sinner. If my sins and my guilt are not transferred to him, if he did not take them upon himself, then surely they remain with me. If he did not deal with my sins, I must face the consequences. Jesus faced our consequences. That word trespasses means to deviate from a path or to wonder. It's a present participle, which means a continuous experience. We don't just occasionally trespass. We're always trespassing. We're always wandering off the path. I mean, it's hard for us. To, to run the straight line. It's hard for us to walk the narrow path. The wide path looks a lot better and a lot more appealing. But Paul says, when you're trespassing, you're taking no consideration of God into your life. You're not taking consideration of the fact that you are out of step with God and that you're spiritually dead to the possibilities of taking a deep breath and knowing what forgiveness and grace, and peace, and mercy, and comfort, and unconditional love could look like and feel like. John MacArthur said, apart from God, men are spiritual zombies. They are the walking dead who can't even know they are dead. They may go through the motions of life, but they certainly don't possess it. When we are dead in trespasses and sin, God is irrelevant to us. He's a passing thought, but he's not really on our radar. He has no influence over our life. This, this indicates the sphere, the realm of our trespasses. It impacts us physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Trespasses and sin, the moral, ethical areas of our life. This continual habit of sinning the outward manifestation of a sinful nature. When I commit sins, it's because I have a sin nature, and that nature begins to express itself. I am dead in trespasses and sins. That's the most common word for sin. It means to miss the mark, to fall short of the target. I, I missed God. And people can miss God by knowing about him in, it, in their head, but never receiving him into their heart as their personal Lord and Savior. That's our invitation to you today, is that you would let God take a mental awareness of him and turn it into a life commitment to him by receiving him into your heart. 
Sin is a failure. It keeps us from being what God designed us to be. Sin kills innocence. Sin kills ideals. Sin kills the will. Sin rules. Sin controls. And when he's using these two words, trespasses and sins, what he's basically doing is he's saying those sins of omission and commission. In other words, the things that I do that I wish I didn't do and the things that I did that I shouldn't have done. God covered all of those, past, present, and future, every person that ever lived. You see, here's what God knew. We didn't need a tune-up. We needed an overhaul. I didn't just need to tweak a few areas of my life and try to do better here than I did last week. I didn't need to make a New Year's resolution. I didn't need to turn over a new leaf. I, I, I needed an overhaul. I needed a new engine. I, I needed something new to drive my life. The old needed to pass away and the new needed to come. Sin had become my master. I needed a new master. We didn't need resuscitation. We needed resurrection. We're not just, oh, let's revive him so he can go about his business. We needed a resurrection because only in resurrection do we have the power to live the life that God has called us to live. You see, the only difference between dead and trespasses and sin is the extent of what dead is. Whether somebody died a minute ago, a year ago, or 20 years ago, they all have something in common. They're dead. And if we die in our sin without embracing and accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we have no hope of heaven, no hope of eternal life. We will spend eternity in a place called hell, separated from God, and God doesn't want anybody to go there. Secondly, we had a problem we couldn't fix. We formerly walked according to the course of this world. There's this downward spiral going on in our lives. We're, we're spiritually bankrupt. Our position is determining our condition. So if, if I've got a problem I can't fix, then that's going to determine my condition until I fix the problem, and I can't fix the problem. So God has to fix the problem. I, I'm in bondage to systems that don't work. Be better. Try harder. I need to walk in a different direction from the world. Verse 2, according to the course of this world. Phillips paraphrases that, the world's idea of living. This can be pure evil. Now, this is important. This sin, these trespasses, this Walking according to the course of the world can be pure evil. We say, oh, yeah, well, I know what evil is, but let me tell you what else it is. It's situational ethics. It's changing your ethics depending on who you're around. Oh, I don't do this when I'm around a religious crowd, but I do this when I'm around my other buddies. It, it is political correctness. The course of this world is to be politically correct. Calling sin, sin is not political correctness. You can find a preacher that can tell you you will go to heaven and you don't have to confess your sin. He's lying to you. The problem is you won't know that until it's too late. It can be political correctness. It can be the changing definitions of marriage and of family and of gender. Where does this all come from? 
Where does this all come from? It's, it's not coming from Hollywood, it, it, although it is. Here's where it comes from. Paul tells us, the prince of the power of the air. In other words, the one who has authority and dominion and has his own kingdom, that's Satan. Now, this is not a kingdom equal to the kingdom of God. But Satan has a realm of influence that God has allowed him to have. He's granted certain liberties in this fallen world. And his kingdom comes out in political correctness, in uh, gender misunderstandings, in situational ethics, addictions, in ruin, in destruction, in hate, in evil, in decay, in murder, in adultery, you name it. It comes out in everywhere. And all of those things I just named have never helped anyone feel better or be better. They always take us down. The course of this world is headed down. When he says the prince of the power of the air, the word that he uses is for a thick smog or black darkness. In other words, this power of Satan, if we do not break free from it, if we don't see God, then the evil power blinds us to where we're headed. We are moving in the dark toward more darkness. The spirit, he says, that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that spirit or that attitude that is disobedient to God, the spirit of the age that works in unbelievers is controlled by the devil. There's a spirit that is consistent with an unsaved person. It's an energy. It's a force. It drives them. Well, you say, I, you know, I'm not that bad. But can I tell you, when a crisis hits, like the crisis we're in now, people run to the store and load up on toilet paper and on water and on all kind of things, and they think nothing of their neighbor. All they care about is filling their cart for their lives and for their happiness so that they won't be inconvenienced. You know why? Because they're dead in trespasses and sin. There's no thought of sharing. There's no thought of koinonia, of fellowship in the family. There's no thought of giving of ourselves. This is the spirit that rules in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience, translated children. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom for a certain characteristic of people who disobey. Now, I, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but we might have flattened this curve sooner if people had heeded warnings at the moment. You say, well, we, don't, we didn't know then what we know now. But here's what we did know. We did know that tens of thousands of high school and college students had no business being on the beaches in Florida and then traveling to 20 other states and possibly taking a virus with them. Because on a beach, you don't practice social distancing. You're hanging out, and sometimes you're doing really stupid things. You know what that is? That's the sons of disobedience. That's saying nobody can tell me how to act. Nobody can tell me what to do. We, we've had apartment complexes here in our own community. We're number three in the world in cases, and we've got people that are acting like they're insane. 
kids huddled up outside one other kid's door, shoulder to shoulder, laughing, talking, spitting. They're not practicing social distancing, playing tennis, going to the parks when they've said where the parks need to be closed. You say, well, they need an outlet. Figure out something else. That's the attitude of the sons of disobedience. You say it's not a big thing. It is a big thing if somebody infects someone and it affects their parents or their grandparents and they die from this. That's how much disobedience runs in our veins. We would rather pretend it won't happen to us than to say, Lord, I've just got a rebellious spirit in my heart and I just want to do what I want to do and nobody can tell me what to do. Thirdly, we were depraved and doomed. Verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. When Paul says we too all, he's saying nobody is exempt. Verse 1, he's talking about the Gentiles. Verse 3, he's talking about the Jews. What he's reminding us of is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, nor no, not one. And Paul rarely misses an opportunity to describe the universal sinfulness of man. Paul lived in a world that was full of multiple religions. But Paul knew one thing, man was a sinner and Jesus was the only Savior that would give them any chance of getting to heaven. A life obsessed with doing the opposite of what God says, that's living according to the desires of our flesh. Our sin is so infected that it entices us to just be evil, indulging. Look at that word, indulging. Doing whatever it took to accomplish what our flesh desired. It's a present tense, a habitual action. Desires, doing what we feel like doing, living on our feelings, no thought of consequences. Paul would write to the Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 21 and say, you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. See, our problem is we have an unregenerate flesh and an unrepentant mind. And Paul talks about the mind, this place where we make our judgments, our decisions, where our thoughts are determined. We are by nature children of wrath. That is not what God intended. That is not what God intended. But God has to judge sin. He's not some benevolent grandfather that hands out money to his grandchildren. He's not some distant deity that has removed himself from this world system. Justice has to be served because God is holy. And because God is holy, he poured his wrath on his son to take our sin. But if we do not embrace his son as our savior, then that wrath has to be turned on us and we die in our sin. God is not subject to mood swings. He doesn't play favorites. It's one way, Jesus. It's one method, the cross, the blood. It's one hope, the resurrection. See, by nature, we are children of wrath. By deeds, we are children of disobedience. And by grace, we are children of a heavenly Father. 
John Stott, the great English preacher, said, Paul is not giving us a portrait of some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society. He's not just talking about some little siloed group over here. Or even of the extremely corrupt paganism of his own day. No. This is the biblical diagnosis of fallen humanity in fallen society everywhere. Man, well, if, what, if what he said is true, then, then I'm sunk. I don't have any hope. Man, you know, Michael, give me a break. I mean, just negative, 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 negative. I told you at the beginning it's going to get positive, but all of us are a little hard-headed and self-defensive, and we have to get to the point where we, this way means yes. Yes, that's the way I am. That's the way I think. That's the way my old flesh wanted to act. That's who I was before I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, God didn't save you according to your plans. Even when you were dead in trespasses and sin, before you were ever born, God provided a sinless substitute, his son for you. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, but the God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The sinless Son of God died on a tree, on a cross, so that I could be saved. So that you could be saved. There's an old song, it dates back to the 70s, uh, during the days of the Jesus movement, the latter days of the Jesus movement. And as I was working on this message, I began to think about this song. It was written by Dallas Holm. And I think this song might be your song. Because when I finish reading some of the words of this song, I want to invite you to take a next step. I want to invite you. If you're, if you're not sure you're saved, you need to nail it down. You need to today make Jesus your Lord and Savior. You need to pray and ask him into your heart. If you're not sure, at the bottom of the screen, you'll see a next step, how you can contact us. And we can walk with you and pray with you and pray for you. Or pray for a loved one that you want to give us their name and ask us to pray for them that they would be saved. To pray for your one. What's the next step that you need to take? Before you figure out what church you're going to when this is all over, before you figure out if you're going to go back to your connect group, the thing that you need to figure out the most is, do I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? So as I was working on this, this song came to mind. The title of the song is, At My Worst, You Found Me. These are the words. Really simple. At my worst, you found me. At my worst, you died. 
at my worst you loved me and at my worst you tried to tell me that the best thing that I could do would be to give my life to you. At my worst, you love me, and now I love you too. How could you love me, Jesus? How did you know my name? Why did you save me, Jesus? Oh, I'll never know how you love me so, and I'll never see what you saw in me. Listen, listen. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how bad you think you are. I don't feel how, I, I don't care how worthless you think you are. At the bottom, God sent his son to die for you, to give his life for you so that you could celebrate every day in resurrection power. You could know the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. You could know forgiveness that cannot be found by going to a priest or asking. It's a forgiveness at the core of our being. Yes, we ought to be right with others, but the first person we need to be right with is God. So I'm going to ask you to go to that link and take the next step. Let us pray for you, help you, and rejoice with you that you have given your life to Jesus, the substitute for you, for you. Not just for the whole world, but for you. Take him as your Lord and Savior right now. You'll never, ever, ever regret it. Happy Easter. He is not here. He is risen from the dead. What a Savior.